First John chapter 2 today, you all. Open your Bibles. A uh, couple of things. First off, uh, I know uh, for a number of our kids, it's the last Sunday here at Woodburn as they move off to college. Any of you in this room? Is this your last Sunday? Anybody heading to college? Uh, I know Carson Esther's in the last service, uh, is going to college in a river of his mother's tears. Uh, so pray for them. It's hard, y'all. It just really is. Parents, it really is. It's, it's a wonderful but really tough thing. So pray for our families in this transition. Also, um, if you're available tomorrow and Tuesday to help, we're just trying to get volunteers on Western's campus to help move kids in. Uh, it's just a ministry of our church. I think it's a great thing. Uh, I would love for somebody's church to be on the sidewalk to meet Carson Esters in Lexington tomorrow to move him into his dorm, and I think we should be there for somebody else's kids and do the same thing. We'll wear our Woodburn Church shirts. If you don't have one, we'll provide you one, and uh, just a way to uh, welcome uh, kids uh, to Western. I'm excited about that. Also, uh, it's been a long time since we passed an offering plate in this church. Some of you have never seen us pass an offering plate in this church because you have joined since COVID, but we're bringing the offering plates back. We're going to start passing an offering again in September. Uh, I'm pretty excited. Now, we're not doing it to get more money. Uh, thankfully, and because of the generosity of this church and your faithfulness, all through COVID and all the time, I mean, we quit passing the offering plate, but our offerings never went down, not one nickel. And I think that's amazing. Most of you have already learned to give online or were giving online or have started giving online. Casey and I give online. We don't uh, give a check, you know, in the box or anything at church when we come anymore. Um, and we're not going to start, you know, so we're not going to be putting anything in the plate. Most of you won't either. Um, but all through the Bible, giving is a part of worship, and it's not really about just making sure the church has money. It's, it's about understanding where everything comes from and being reminded regularly that we have a debt that we owe to God. So it's never only about money. And as I say, most of us aren't going to be putting anything in the plate uh, as it is. However, I also think it's a good opportunity to teach our children. Most of your children aren't using their you know, phone to give online. Um, as a child, my parents gave me an allowance, and I learned how to take a tenth of that and give a tithe to the Lord. I tithe as a child every Sunday by putting my, you know, at one point it literally was a dime in the plate. Uh, but that's good. That's training children well, and I want us to do that. So the plates are coming back. We have the old plates. We still have those. What we don't have is a schedule of ushers anymore, and we need that. So we need volunteers for this service. All the services, really, but this is probably your service. So if you're willing to take up the offering, uh, it's a great thing to do as a family, uh, men, women, children. We just let anybody take up the offering. Uh, now some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, I take up the offering, but you know, I don't want to be called on to pray. You know, somebody always gets, and, and we do. That's part of the, that moment is having someone lead in prayer. But let me tell you a church secret. Are you ready? This is how everything works. The person who comes on this aisle and stands right there is always going to pray. And they know it. Like the ushers were fighting that out in the last song, you know, and when they come in, this person is designated to pray. So he or she already is ready, and they know they're praying, and they're not being surprised. And if you never want to pray, don't come and stand right there. <laughs> Just don't, because we're assuming that that's been worked out. Again, typically four ushers, and you just get in one of the other spots. Again, this person is always designated. They always know that they're going to pray and we're not surprising them. Make sense? So if that's a way that you'd love to serve, we would love to see you serve uh, in, in that way. Uh, also, before we worship, let me uh, give you an update on one of our guys. His name is Keith Cassida. 
Uh, Keith was getting over COVID, had some stomach issues, thought it was something he ate. He went to the emergency room, and they found a mass on his colon and a spot on his kidney, and have kept him at Greenview. So a lot of uh, uh, questions to be answered for Keith. I know they're worried. So pray for Keith and Jan, and uh, if you get a chance to go visit him, he's at Greenview Hospital. Um, let's, let's jump into the Word today. First John chapter 2. I've started a new series entitled, Not of This World, from the book of First John. I said last week that First John is an epistle, a letter, and it probably is, but it may not be. For the simple reason that in the ancient world, uh, letters had a very strict form, just like letters in our day have a form. If you want to write a letter, I will say, dear Jason, you know, I'll write the body of the letter, then I'll say, you know, sincerely, Tim, that sort of thing. Letters have a format. In the ancient world, they also had a format, except it was different from ours. They always started with the sender. So rather than saying, you know, dear Jason, you know, Paul would start by saying, this is Paul. Which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. You're like, who's writing me? You know? So the sender's at the top, and then right under the sender is you know, the, the recipient who it's going to. It's just like from Paul to the church at Corinth. That's how all of Paul's letters are structured. First uh, John, uh, if it's a letter, it's anonymous. Uh, we believe that John wrote it because honestly, if you've read the Gospel of John or anything else John writes, this is John all day long. You can recognize his vocabulary, his writing, his style. And church tradition tells us the Apostle John writes it. Church tradition also tells us it was written as a letter to the church at Ephesus. But like I say, the letter itself doesn't tell us that, which would be odd for an ancient letter. However, especially in what we're reading this morning, you get the idea that this really is something sent to a particular church because in what we read today, it's clear that there's some things that have gone on in a particular church, and John's addressing those. Now, now what we'll find out, and we're about to read it, what you're going to find out is there's been a church split. There's been a group of people in the church that, that has left, and John thinks that's a good thing. Because, as John's going to read, he says that they are actually antichrists. Now, anybody familiar with that word antichrist? Uh, you associate it with what? Like, like the end of the world, when Jesus comes back, right before he comes back, according to Scripture, there will be this political figure, this very powerful leader um, that John calls the Antichrist. He's going to come. He will rule for a very short time before Jesus comes back and pulls the plug on the whole thing. All right? Um, the word Antichrist, just so you know, is, is John's word. He's the only one that uses it. And the passage we're reading today in 1 John chapter 2 is one of the only places in the Bible where the word Antichrist appears, and it never occurs anywhere where John didn't write. So Paul doesn't use the word Antichrist, and if you're interested, or if, if, and you may question me here, but I'm telling you, the word Antichrist does not appear in the book of Revelation. It's not there. It's only in today's passage, and then again in chapter 4, and then one place in, in the little letter of 2 John. So the word Antichrist is unique to John, and today, as he uses it in this passage, it's not like you're used to hearing it used. He's going to talk about people who are Antichrists. So let's jump in. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. I told you that in this series, we're going to read every single word of the book of John, and Abby's already read the first 14 verses. So I'm going to start in verse 15. Here we go. Do not love this world. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. 
For the world offers only a, a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Dear children, the last hour is here. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our church, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. But you're not like that. For the Holy One has given you His Spirit, and all of you know the truth. So I'm writing to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who's a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. And anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you must remain faithful to what you've been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will abide in Him and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life He promised us. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. But you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Abide in him. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. All right, a couple of things. First off, the first phrase in verse 15, do not love this world. Do not love this world. All right, first off, this is like the most beautiful day ever. This is really pretty. Uh, I don't care what kind of weather you like, whether you like it cold or like it hot, today's perfect. This morning was absolutely perfect. Uh, I, I got up early. I ate my cereal outside. I watched deer walk across the field behind my house. It was glorious. I took a walk this morning, and I saw more deer, and I saw this fox, this beautiful red she-fox who has already raised her Foxlets, what are they called? The kittens, the puppies, what are they? What, what do foxes have? Kits? Kits, okay, that's good. We've all learned something already today. Um, this beautiful she-fox has raised her kits uh, in, in front of our house, and it's just so beautiful. It's all so beautiful. I, I love the world. I, I love the sky. I love the breeze. I love that the nights this week are going to be in the 60s. We're going to turn off our air and sleep with the windows open, and I love that. I love that super moon that's been shining in our bedroom window every night this week. Um, I love cities. I, I love people. I love to ride trains and airplanes. I love to look at night across the cityscape and see the lights across the water. I love all of this. And yet, right here at the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, don't love the world or the things it offers you. It 
if you love the world, then you can't love the Father. I mean, what? What does that mean? To make it more complicated, this is John, we assume, the Apostle John writing. And in the most famous verse John ever wrote, John 3, 16, what does he say? For God so loved the world. Like the most famous verse John ever wrote says God loved the world. And then right here in chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do not love this world. So which is it? Does God love the world or does God not love the world? Am I supposed to love the world or am I not supposed to love the world? Answer me. What do you think? Love God more. Love God more. Yeah, I think Fern's right on it. You, you love God more. Understand here, in John three sixteen, the obvious thing you need to understand is God loves the people. God loves the people of this world. God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him. Understand, we're talking about the plan of salvation and we're talking about how God saves people. God loves people. John 3, 16 is about how much God loves people. God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him, Jesus, shall not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the people of this world, but... But there are things in this world that stand in evil opposition to his perfect love. There are things in this world that go against God. Now, where did these things come from? When God made the world, understand, God made the world, and every time God made something, book of Genesis says, he would stand back and go, now that is good, right? He would create it, he'd stand back and go, that is, if I say so myself, that is good. I mean, God saw the world that he had made, and everything he made was good. What happened? Sin happened. We happened. You happened, right? And me. We brought sin into this world, and so things are broken now. Things are ruined now. The world no longer exists in the way that God created it and intended it to be. There are lots of things that are wrong now, and you know this. You know this. In your life, if not every day, very regularly, you will see this world and, and the brokenness of this world, and you're likely to ask, where is God? Why does God let things go on like this? Why does God let the world? Why does God let children go hungry? Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow cancer? Why does God you know, take mothers away from their children? Why? I mean, why? Why? I mean, we ask these questions, and, and so I just want you to put those things together. You know that there's things in this world that exist in contradiction to God's will, in contradiction to what God intends, and, and in opposition to his perfect love. Not everything in this world now exists as God intends. So understand, one day God's going to come and destroy everything that opposes his love. Everything that is broken, ruined, everything that is bent away from his original, perfect, loving purpose. God is going to come back and make everything right. He's going to give us a new heaven, a new earth. He's going to once more divide light from darkness, righteous from unrighteousness. God is going to make everything right. That's good news. That's good news. Except for the complicating factor that now there are people all mixed up in this. God loves the people of the world. And if you just come down right now and you just, you know, erase evil, the problem is there are a lot of people that have aligned themselves with evil and God still loves them. 
So scripture makes plain that the whole reason that time goes on, the reason that God waits, and the reason why he doesn't come right now and squash the devil like a bug is because God is trying to give people time to get ready, time to repent, time to align themselves with his plan and his love so that when everything else is destroyed, you will stand there with Christ in the end. You understand? I mean, this is the gospel. This is how everything works out. And so what you have to understand right now is that God loves the people of this world, but we're not supposed to love the world. Now, when John says that, he's not talking about the, the things I just mentioned. Not exactly. He's talking about the things of the world that belong to, to sin, the things that are passing away, the things that God is going to have to destroy. Everything in this world is, is passing away. God's about to come and pull the plug on the whole mess. Do you understand that? So, do not love this world, John says, nor the things that it offers you. For the world offers only, and then in verse 16 there, he lists three things. This is what the world has to offer you. First, a craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything you see. Pride in your achievements and possessions. Okay. Are, are these things in themselves sin? A craving for physical pleasure. Do you crave physical pleasure? Oh, I know you do. That's why you're sitting in these pews that have this fancy lumbar support, which cost us a lot of extra money when we built the church, but you people had to have it. You know, we love comfort. Same reason we got air conditioning going up in this place, and no matter who you are, it's either too hot for you or too cold, you know, because we love comfort. We really, really love comfort. We love physical pleasure. I love the feeling of the sun shining on my face or the cool breeze blowing across my body. You know, physical pleasure is just a part of life. And, and, and is it necessarily sinful? Not necessarily. I mean, everything you see, you can't say that everything you see is bad or that everything you see is wrong. That's not what John is saying. It's not that everything you see, I mean, you can't poke your eyes out. Pride in your achievements. I mean, yeah, I know you can jump the shark on this, but most of us, you're just proud. I mean, like right now, half of you, if we, if we took five minutes and let you have the stage to show us pictures of your grandkids, you'd take five hours. You know, tell us about your grandkids or, you know I mean? We're proud of our achievements. You get a promotion at work, you feel good about that. Is that necessarily wrong? I mean, we don't want you to be a loser. Take pride in your achievements, pride in your possessions. I, I know people can go crazy with this, but if you never just had a, a new blouse, you know, or a new pair of pants or a new car or a different car, or you, you get a new phone because you've been cantering that old janked up phone you had in middle school and with a cracked screen and now you got a new phone and you just wish you had somebody call, you know? I, I mean, these things are not in themselves sinful or, or, or bad, but it goes back to what Fern said. It goes back to what John is saying right here, verse 17. This world and everything in it is passing away, is fading away, along with everything that people crave. I think the point is, yeah, to appreciate physical pleasure is part of being human, but you can't make your whole life about seeking physical pleasure. And there are people who do that. 
All they want is, is, is some sort of sexual delight, some sort of sexual thrill. And the point is, once you start chasing after these things, you'll never have enough. You'll never be satisfied. A craving for everything you see. I mean, like everything you see can't be bad, but some of us, man, everything we see, we want. I've got to have it. And then once I have this shiny thing, there's something shinier over here, and then I want that. The point is, you can have everything and you'll never have enough. Pride in your achievements, pride in your possessions. Man, we all know that there is a way in which this can be sort of imbalanced, but then some people go way beyond that. They take such pride in their achievements, man. They think they are everything. They think they are the center of everything. Or people in their possessions, man, some people, they they will do anything for more and more and more stuff. A bigger house, a bigger television, nicer devices, a, a fancy car, you know, clothes. You can't make these things the center of your life because understand all these things are passing away. Remember how I said that God's going to come back and God's going to pull the plug on this whole mess. God's going to set everything right, but there's going to be a new heaven and new earth. And everything in this world and everything it offers you, it is only temporary. It is going away. So you can't fall in love with it. You can't give your heart to it. You can't love it that much. you got to love the Lord more. Now, Now, he goes on. I love it. Verse 18. If you're wondering what time it is, Dear children, the last hour is here. It is the last hour, John says. What does he mean by that? It's the last hour. Y'all aren't talking to me at all today, are are you? Yeah, time is running now. Absolutely, time is running out. What time? Like this sermon is almost over, y'all are hoping? What's he mean? Time's running out. The last hour is here, and we're down to the count. This is the final hour. 60 minutes left. What's he talking about? He's talking about the world. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. He is saying that we are down to the last hour. Now, was he mistaken with that? Because I'm not a great person doing math in my head, but by my count, we're about 2,000 years after John said it was the last hour. Did he miss that by a little? That's the thing. People have been saying for a long time that Jesus is coming back. I mean, obviously, they've been saying that for a long time. I remember one day riding with my grandma Mays in the car. She was in the front seat. She never drove. We just drove her to church and back some days. And uh, it was one of those winter days when it was really, really warm and awesome, but just really too warm for winter, you know. And I was loving that. And all of a sudden, my grandma May said, you know, they say that right before Jesus comes back, you won't know one season from another. Well, Grandma, thank you for that. I mean, you know what I mean? Like that, what a way to ruin a good sunny, sunny day. Because that's the thing. As a kid, when people talked about Jesus coming back, it always really scared me. I mean, because, you know, the preachers would preach out of Revelation. There'd be, you know, beasts coming out of the ocean, you know, and the moon turns to blood, and, you know, people dying in the Antichrist, and, you know, 666, and and then I stayed up one night and watched the omen, you know, and then, you know, oh, gosh, and and it's just, it all became so, it's like a horror movie. 
And the way a lot of people talk about the second coming, the way a lot of people talk about Jesus' return, they make it sound horrible. They make it sound terrifying. And I want you to understand that in Scripture, in this Scripture, and everywhere else you read the Scripture, understand the promise of the second coming is always proclaimed as good news for believers. It's good news. If you know Jesus, understand this is only good news. It's the best news possible. I mean, like I say, you walk around wondering why in the world God doesn't come back and, and, and set this world straight. This is the promise. He is. He's coming. He is. In, any moment, any day, it, it's the last hour. Time is running out. You have no idea if I'll even finish this sermon. You don't know if you'll have lunch. You don't know if you'll live to see another day. Jesus could come back at any time, and that's actually good news. If you love him, th- that's good news. Back in my youth minister days, I had these two girls, Angie and Denise, and Angie said, Pastor Tim, last Friday night I spent the night at Denise's house, and we got under the covers with a flashlight and read the book of Revelation and scared each other. Okay, if you are talking, if you're a believer, and you're talking about the second coming of Jesus, and it scares you, okay, you're doing something wrong. This is good news. That Jesus is coming back. This is good news. This is the best news. But, 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 but I guess it all depends on how much you love this world. How much you love Jesus. You understand? If, if you love the world more than you love Jesus, then the news that the world is passing away and Jesus is coming soon, that, that's not good news for you. It, it kind of shows you where your heart is. So, so John says... The last hour is here. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that Jesus could come in the next hour? Because honestly, Scripture teaches that, and as a believer, you should know that. He could come at any moment. Scripture says like a thief in the night. I understand, a thief in the night, like somebody going to rob you, they don't call and schedule an appointment. They just come. They just show up. Scripture says it's like a woman in labor, which means the water breaks and gush, you know, and, that, and then the baby's coming. The process has begun, and now the only thing that, that can happen out of this, the only outcome is, is the baby comes. And, and the world is in this, this weird time. It's, it's like labor, according to Scripture. And the world is sort of, you know, writhing in, the, in these labor pains because creation is, is, is off its base. It's turned upside down, and everything is messed up by sin. And there is this anguish, that this labor, that this pain that goes with this particular moment in time, but this, this doesn't last forever. This pain is going to pass, and, and we're about to give birth to an eternity with the Lord, eternal life in, in Him. This is good news, but we're in that in-between time, and, and this is what John is trying to make you understand. There's an urgency here because you don't know how much time we have. And if John says it was the last hour then, then, then it's even later for us. The coming of Jesus is even closer for you and me. If he was in the last hour or in the last minutes, do you understand that? So let me ask you the question. If you really believe that Christ would return one hour from now, right now it is about 1019. So if you really believe that Jesus would return at 1119 today, how would you spend the next 60 minutes? That's a real question. I fully believe that Jesus could come within the next hour. I really believe that, don't you? 
So if you believe that, how would you spend the next 60 minutes? Well, I'd have to go home and put my dog up. No. No, I got bad news about your dog, you know. Um, well, I, I, I'd probably need to call into work and let him. No. No, work won't matter, you know. You don't ever have to go back to work. You understand that? Well, uh, you know, I, I, I probably need to finish, you know, watching the second season of Gilmore Girls. I, I really want to find out what happens on my show. No. No. I need to go home and I, I want to throw a few things in a bag to take with me. I need to pack a bag. <laughs> no. You're not taking anything with you. I mean, do I have to tell you that? So how would you spend the next 60 minutes? I mean, all of a sudden you understand that your priorities are going to be really, really different. Everything in this world, everything that you can see, everything that you can hold, possessed, it's all passing away. Your job, your house, you're not going to go home and mow your yard, you know. It's all over. All that's over. So the only thing you're going to care about are the, the things that are going to be in eternity with you, right? Because everything else is passing away. And, and so then you realize that the only thing you can see down here, the only thing you can see down here that you will see over there, that you'll see on the other side of the end of this world, the only thing that's going to be there that's here now is people, us. So something tells me if you really believed that a 60 minutes to live in this world, that you'd be knocking on doors. There are people you'd want to talk to. I mean, and not to say, you know, I think we people you'd want to warn. I think we people you'd want to share Jesus with. You'd want to make sure that they were going to be there with you. I think it changes everything. And this is what John is trying to convey. The, the, the last hour is here. Now from there, he goes to the Antichrist, because that's kind of where a lot of people go. Okay? And, and you know the Antichrist is coming, John says. And we're in the last hour, Antichrist is coming. But John says something really interesting, and I don't think most of us ever think like this. But he says, already many such antichrists have appeared. The idea is that, that for, for John, the antichrist isn't really just a future threat. The antichrist spirit, and he'll, talk, he'll use that language in chapter 4, the spirit of the antichrist is already loose in the world. And he says, this is how we know that time's running out. You know, that spirit of the antichrist is already moving through, and, and he's already active within certain people. I mean, John literally calls certain people like little a antichrists. They're antichrists. And, and that's the point. There are many of these people that have come and gone, and there will be many more, and you need to know how to spot them. And right now, somebody's thinking, yeah, Pastor Tim, I, I never thought about that, but I, have, I, I, think, I think my first husband was the antichrist. You know, and know what you're thinking? It's like, yeah, my boss, my boss was the antichrist. You know, all, all the politicians in Washington, they got, they're bound to be antichrist. Um, yeah, it doesn't work that way. You don't just get to say everybody you don't like. The word, though, is, is very, fairly simple word, antichrist, and as John makes clear, and it's his word, like I say, he's the only one that uses it. It's his word. 
He can use it any way he wants. But for, for him, Antichrist, it just means, you know, against Jesus. And that's it. They're against Jesus. And, and John says there's going to be one guy that coming in the end. He's going to take his stand against Jesus. But, but his spirit, you know, there's, there's something in the water. And there's already people who, who themselves, are, they just sort of set themselves up against Jesus. And, and that's the dividing line. John says some of those people are in our church and they're gone. And it's good that they're gone because they didn't belong here. He's not being judgmental. It's not like church fights that you've lived through where you know, half the church changed the locks one Saturday night and locked the other half out of the church, and, you know, and they're fighting over the color of the carpet or something stupid. You know, true story, you know, that happened in a local county. Um, people are crazy. People fight and divide. And, but we're not talking about crazy people fighting and dividing here. For John, he knows exactly where the line is. And you don't draw the line at personal preference or people you like or, or anything else. It's not about politics. It's not about opinions. For John, there's only one dividing line, and that's the line you draw at the person of Jesus. I mean, I mean he says it. Verse 22, who's a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ, anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. You draw the line at Jesus. What do they say about Jesus? That's the only line to be drawn. I mean, if you're wondering about another religious group, Pastor Tim, are they, are they Christian? That's an easy question to answer. What do they say about Jesus? We don't have to talk about everything else about them. Do, you know, do their women wear pants or skirts? Or you know, what day of the week do they worship on? Or what kind of music do they play? None of that. It's all beside the point. What do they say about Jesus? And John says, these people, they left us because they weren't part of us because these people didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. Verse 26, I'm writing these things to warn you, John says, about those who want to lead you astray. Now, that was back then, probably in Ephesus, you know, 2,000 years ago, where they got Antichrist running around. But now, you think people like me and you, do we need that kind of warning? People trying to lead us astray now? Every day. It's a spirit of the Antichrist. It's, it's all of the things, all the people that just work to oppose Christ in your life. I love what John said. Lo I love the final word there. And now, dear children, abide in him. Remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, we're back to that. So that when he returns, he, when he returns, you're, you're going you're gonna to look him in the face. It's going to be personal. I know you were kind of hoping that when Jesus comes back, you're just going to find some big lady and stand behind her where Jesus doesn't see you. You know, you're just going to kind of, kind of blend in the crowd, but there's no blending in. Everything with Jesus is always personal. So when Jesus returns, and it could be in the next hour, it could be in the next minute, you're going to look him in the face. You're going to see him, and you're going to feel all kinds of something. That's what John says. Now, some of us are going to be full of courage. It's the first thing he says, full of courage. And, and I love that. I hope that I will be full of courage because you understand, I love him now. I love him now, and I've never seen him. So when I see him, I'm really going to love him. I, I really want to see him. I, I try to live my life to serve him, and I'm never perfect in it. But when I see him, I, I just want to see him. 
I just want to know him like that. I can't wait to see him. And, and in those days when my grandma would say he's coming and the world's going to end, I would be so afraid because honestly, in those days, I probably loved the world more. But, but now, God help me, I, I think I love Jesus more. I love Jesus more than all of this down here. I love Jesus more than the deer in my backyard and the sea fox who raised her kids. I love him more than the sky and the ocean because all of that, all of that's gonna be gone. The only thing left is Jesus. If he's not everything to you now, I'm telling you, I have a feeling that when you see him face to face, it won't be courage you'll be full of. You need to remain in him so that when he returns, you'll be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. You're going to look him in the face and some of you are going to hide your face in shame. You're not going to be able to look at him. Because you know him, but you've lived your whole life as if he weren't even real. You know what he wants you to do, and you continue to do otherwise, and you're going to stand before him and answer for that. You're going to answer for every opportunity, every gift. You're going to have to answer for everything he's done for you and everything you failed to do for him. You're going to have to look him in the face. That's why John says you need to abide in him. You need to make sure that you have your relationship with Jesus locked down now because one day you'll stand before him and it's going to be too late. Which brings me back to the question. If you thought he would come back in the next hour, John says this is the last hour. Time is ticking. And if you believed that, 60 minutes how would you spend the next 60 minutes? I think you answer that question and you will have a very, very clear sense of how you should spend the minutes left of your life. You answer that question, I think you'll begin to understand where your actual priorities should be. Answer that question, I think you'll know how you're supposed to live every day till he comes. Pray with me.